1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to another brand new episode of A Stab in the Dark, the alibi podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama that twirls its moustache, mon ami, gathers all the suspects together in a lavish drawing room and solves a fiendish whodunit. Any crime podcast worth its arsenic will produce an episode dedicated to the late, great Agatha Christie. And today we're finally, yes, finally going to delve into the glorious world of the planet's favourite crime novelist. Joining us to discuss Agatha's work and how it sits in the 21st century crime landscape is award-winning screenwriter, the brilliant Sarah Phelps, the woman who has introduced some of the legendary novelist's work to a brand new generation, thanks to five BBC adaptations. We'll also be celebrating the centenary of Agatha's first published work, The Mysterious Affair at Styles*, and chatting to a real-life member of the Christie family. My name's Mark Billingham, and welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Sarah, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. How's it going?
1: It's going okay, thank you very much.
2: Now, I mentioned in the intro that any Half Decent Crime podcast should be doing an Agatha Christie episode. Um, does that apply to screenwriters too, do you think? Or is taking on a writer of Christie's stature a bit of
1: a poison chalice? I wouldn't be able to tell you whether it was a poison, poison chalice or not because until I started, until I did, and then there were none, I'd never read any Christie and I'd never watched any of the adaptations. So, although I was kind of familiar with her, like you're you know, you you know what a London bus looks like even if you have never been on one. I never sort of really considered the you know, that she's such a giant or that the adaptations that I was doing were going to be kind of receiving all this notoriety. So I mean, of course I knew that she's a best selling novelist and da da well, you know all of that, but I hadn't kind of I hadn't married it together in my in my mind. So um it never occurred to me to. Be, it never occurred to me to think of it as a poison chalice at all. It was, it was just a thing that kind of. I thought it was going to be one thing. I was kind of forced into. I wasn't forced, but it was Damien Timmer from Mammoth said, "Read this. I, read and then there were none." I don't want to. I don't want to do an Agatha Christie. Fuck off. And I went like, "No, no, read it." And when I realized that it was absolutely nothing, that, you know, it wasn't the thing I thought it would be. I I could only think about that and not about the not about you know Christie's reputation or the status her books have in the world I could only think about that one novel
2: so you'd never you'd never read a Christie?
1: no never I think what it was from the snippets that I'd sort of seen because you can't avoid them and I can you know there's um Peter Euston plays uh Poirot and and it's a Hollywood film and it's full of the great and the good and it's waspish and bitchy and then there's a little old lady riding around on a on a bike solving solving crimes and you know about Poirot and you know all of these things they're sort of part and parcel of your kind of cultural landscape but I thought they were rather safe rather cozy tea time viewing there's a body on the floor but nobody really cares and it's sort of ludic rather than it's it's a bit of fun and it's a little bit sort of safe and and I, I just didn't appeal to me at all. So realizing that I, you know, when I read it and I thought, "Holy God, this is this is not what she is at all. She's she's bloody Eisklus, that woman. She's absolutely remorseless." And that book, you know, um, and then anyway, none is absolutely remorseless. Um, it was such a shock and such a bolt that I have just felt my blood surge and sort of think, "This is not what she. None of this safety. you know the." the coziness of the perception of the um the coziness of Christy it's it's absolutely not her at all it's something that's happened to her over the years I think
2: I was going to say so I mean where does that come from then because I, I, I suppose my attitude to Christy early on was the same as your initial attitude I think it's in a, and and then they went on or whatever it was called before that and whatever it was called before that um, there's a scene I think in the book where the Butler's wife is killed, or and he just half an hour later he's serving everybody drinks. And yes, just, you know, it that was my attitude to Christy. And and the world does think of her as the queen of the cozies and the queen of golden age crime. So why is there this misapprehension?
1: Um I genuinely don't know. I and actually, to be honest with you, I think that in part she does that herself. I think she is a rather enigmatic and cloaked writer and I think that she doesn't mind if she comes across as a little bit you know there's a a side of me which thinks do you mind that this comes across (laughs) as a a, a safe little thing or is that a kind of judgment that she's putting on us I'm you know as if her internal monologue is I'm writing about murder I'm writing about a sort of brutal act, brutal humanity doing brutal things to each other, and then lying and lying and lying to hold on to power. Sure, if you want to make it, uh, if you want to make it cozy, that's your business. That says more about you than it does about me. I'm going to illustrate this with a bit of a, um, a story about her and about that and about and then there were none, which is the, uh, there was a, a third production in New York. Uh, post second world war and you know this is all very exciting third production of this of this play and, and then you know this play where everybody dies this locked room murder mystery this portrait of a psychopath this disquisition into the nature of guilt there here it is. it's going to be really exciting but the producers say to christy look everyone's had a really shitty time we we've just come through the war we want a happy ending the audience needs a happy ending the audience needs hope and in this version, which Christy writes, you know, okay, you want a happy ending? I'll give you a happy ending. Vera Claythorne and Philip Lombard escape and leave hand in hand. A child killer and a, multiple, and a, and a serial killer get away with it. And I kind of think there's a sort of sly wink from Christie with that. That she changes the end so these utterly brutal people get away with it. And the audience finds that hopeful. I just think she sort of steps back and kind of looks, looks at it and just goes, well, if that's what you want, if that's what you want, if this is what makes you happy, if this is what you see as a happy ending, yeah. then sure, then sure. And then I, I, I sort of feel like she takes that experience of the way people behave and, and the way they forget really readily what somebody has done and and she sort of salts it away for further use in her books and i um you know when you think about vera, vera um vera Claythorne and then there were none over and over again christie tells you in that book that it's it's not the fact that she killed a child it's the fact that killing that child didn't work to get to what she wanted that's what she's furious about that's what she can't let go of and i just i feel that Poe, as you get into the later novels i always feel like i always feel like she's leaving clues in her in those some of those later novels clues about what what this book is really about because i think there's a really um there's a there's a, a volatile tension between the book she wants to write and the book she knows people want to read one that has a happy ending one that has closure one that kind of you know you've you've absolutely blasted the landscape and then you kind of make it all whole and nice and clean again you restore it to Englishness and I always think that within that she kind of just plants a little clue a little discordant detail that doesn't have doesn't really bear any relation to the rest of the story and I always think that's that's the clue to the to the story she's really writing does that make sense what i
2: just yes, said. yes no it absolutely does i mean what one of the things that, that's always struck me about christy i think and wh- when you talk about when you looked at that book, what you saw straight away was that was the darkness i think this reputation christy's got for coziness um a lot of it is to do with when the books came out and when they were read and you know people are reading these books the, the majority of them between the wars you know after this horrendous horrendous Uh, thing has happened to the world and and in a way they're sort of programmed not to see the darkness they kind of they've had enough darkness Um, so what they're what they're really looking for is that kind of coziness and closure that you were just talking about and that kind of uh reimagining of a a country that never actually existed anyway you know sort of preserved in aspect even though it was never really there Um, and even even a book like You know, and Then They Were None, which comes out just on, I think, just on the start, just at the start of the second. It's, world
1: it's, world. It's, um, it comes out in the summer of 1939, which is yeah. exactly where I set it. And yeah. if anything, I mean, what a sub, what a subversive slide swipe at the English national character that that book is. You know, it, it's as you're about to sort of think, well, at least I can rely on my English Englishness, you're saying to people, well, you have no idea who these people are. These right. characters who sound like they're sort of uh, counters in a board game. The general, the butler, the t- the teacher, the, you know, the spinster, the religious man. All of these people are killers and they go about their business and they just carried on living. There's no red mark of cane on their brow. They did something terrible and they did something terrible for terrible dark reasons. And here they all are pretending to be, normal English neighbours with cut glass accents who know how to behave around the dinner table. It's really, really, it's, I mean, it is subversive. I don't know what else to call it.
2: It's hugely subversive. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a shame. You know, you talk to people sometimes, I talk to colleagues, I talk to contemporary crime writers and, they, and Christie comes up and they'll always say something, a lot of them will say, oh, I prefer something darker. Um, and it is incredibly dark, you know. She's
1: <laughs> as dark as anything. I mean, yeah. there's also there's also a theory I have about one well, theory I have about her, but that you know, here's this um, Chris. Here's this woman who spends the entirety of World War One as a uh, dispensing pharmacist, as a as a VAD, and so she sees the whole of that war through the prism. Of the, of the radical changes in medicine, in drugs, from a drug that can be, make the difference between alleviating a man's pain and making him vomit up his liver. And she see I always imagine in my mind's eye that there she is, this, I mean, this dispensing pharmacist, and she's even qualified dispensing pharmacist, viewing the entire smashed body of masculinity, of politics, of history, of, everything through a grain you know the the measurement of 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 drugs is is a grain there's this kind of quantum quality to her tiny little shifts in atmosphere I think she's really clever and I think she's sly and I think she's veiled and watchful and that she kind of hides not, not not hides but conceals herself behind a kind of palimpsest of, um, of other people's sort of perceptions of who she is and perceptions she invites them to have yeah. from the way she writes. I think she's much stranger and much cleverer and much more secretive than we perhaps think she is. I certainly don't think she's cosy. One of the books that, I mean, like the early short stories are phenomenal um you know witness for the prosecution um philomel corner and they are really uh, shocking on occasion little vignettes of family life and domestic life and married life which are so horrifying they make your blood run cold genuinely horrifying it sounds like a kind of she sometimes i read and go like this is like roald dahl's adult work you know the um some of the Switch Bits stories. That's oh, the they yeah. And um And I think that when we, I mean, the one that was found uh, quite, you know, the one that did uh, Third Ordeal by Innocence, it's a huge book. It just goes on forever and ever and ever, round and round and round and round, and round you know, like terrible, useless policemen. But at the centre of it, and I think that's, that's a deliberate ploy as well, just to take you further and further away from the central premise, which is who the fuck would be a mother? Who the fuck would be a mother? That's the central premise of that book, that it's a nightmare having children, an absolute nightmare. And being a child is a nightmare. And it's full of sort of violent fantasies of escape and of retribution. And every single time another policeman comes in and people quite can't remember what they heard or what they saw or where they were, it's just a deliberate ploy to send you further and further away from what she's actually saying, which is, if this, this woman died, what killed her? Was it the blow to the head or was it striving to be perfect as a mother, as a woman in this post war world? Is that what really killed her? I think she's. She drives me crazy, Christy. She really, really does. But I think I'm onto her. I think I know what she's all about. She's all about concealing how fucking clever she is.
2: Well, it's pretty, it sounds like you've gone from somebody who'd never read any Christie to being being a massive fan, and uh, you... I don't
1: know that I I never like this sort of thing about being a massive fan. I think she doesn't. I think it's different to that. I think it's um, I think it's a sort of like a a, a glinty a flinty eyed admiration. <laughs> I'm, um, and, and, and a respect and a real curiosity about her a real curiosity about her but I don't, I don't really go for the whole thing of being a fan because then you become it, it, it becomes sort of like that hagiographic thing which actually stops you from reading a writer's work and just makes them go well everything they did was brilliant everything she did wasn't brilliant some of the stuff she did is terrible old dreck
2: I think you can be a fan without. I mean I'm a fan of the Beatles but I still think Beatles for Sale is a shit album um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Let's, yeah. Okay. Let's, I take, let's, yeah. Okay,
2: let's I take settle for point. flinty. I, let's settle for flinty-eyed admirer then. Um, yeah. So flinty-eyed admirer. You, flinty-eyed admirer of Christie. And so you followed, and then there were none with Witness of the Prosecution and All the yeah. Innocence, which you just spoke about. Both very different adaptations. But then we get to perhaps the most talked about of your your Christie adaptations, and I really want to get into this: the ABC Murders. Ah. Oh. Um, uh, where, where up pops a certain Hercule Poirot. Now, had, had you purposely stayed away from, from Christie's big characters up to that point? It,
1: it, it wasn't... Here's the interesting thing about choosing the titles. The, the titles weren't ones that I chose. The titles were ones that became available because of complicated um, copyright wrangles. So when I started uh, doing and then, uh, and then There Were None, it was... I had this thought that I could do a quintet of sort of 50 years of the 20th century through the through the through murder mystery and to see if those murder mysteries those christie murders told us what they could tell us about about those you know those 50 years those particular decades when those murders happened like in witness for the prosecution what can we know about the you know what 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 does being post first world war 1920s recession tell us about witness for the prosecution. And so as it, you know, so it went nineteen thirty-nine, then back to the nineteen twenties, and then to the late and then to the nineteen fifties for ordeal by innocence. And then I would say, well would you want to do the ABC murders? And I kind of it didn't wasn't I balked at it. It was just because it's such it's a really good, sleazy story. And it made me think of um let me think of that uh, Peeping Tom, that film quite a like lot, yeah. and just the sort of absolute stink of, you know, the 1930s boarding house and trains and everything like that. But the central problem for me was, was Poirot, which is that he's so familiar, not to me, but he's, because I've never watched, never read, blah, blah, blah. But he's so familiar, and he comes with a sort of set of assumptions, and the kind of like the twirling of the moustache and everything like that. Actually, I tell a lie. I did watch the Kevin Elliott um, adaptation of *Final Curtain*, which I thought was actually wonderful with David Suchet in it. That was that, that was wonderful. So when it was came to doing the ABC murders, I thought, well, I I want my Poirot to be as much of a mystery as the mystery oh. itself. I want him to be the the mystery that we're unraveling. That you know, everybody thinks they know this portly little gent with his sort of wax mustache and his ridiculous sort of mannerisms. Yeah. yeah. Let peel. Let's let's peel him away. So, and even when I was writing the scripts, you know, he was never. I mean, unless somebody called him that, he was always in the scripts. Uh, Hercule, not Poirot. Always Hercule. And I just sort of asked myself a lot of questions about him and who he was and why he behaved the way he did and why canonically he said he had particular catchphrases and why canonically he had particular beliefs and, and just sort of created a mystery for him out of what was already there by just kind of asking, why does he do that? Like, why does he call groups of adults form, Enfants? Why does he do mm. that? Yeah. How does being how does being a, a refugee, a Belgian refugee, fleeing Belgium um, in the onslaught and the blood and the violence of the invasion, how you know how what's it like to be him now in the nineteen thirty three of, of where you have the British Union of Fascists absolutely on the rise and gaining such political clout? What is it like to be Hercule? in this britain well, and uh, it, and then it, tying all the murders into that yeah i think it's a, it a
2: brilliant way that you you gave poirot depth in that in that adaptation because as you say up to that point you know he's just a twitching bunch of foibles you know he, he, there's nothing interesting about him until, until you start it's, a, to it's a bit of a shame
1: really isn't it because yeah. uh, i mean i remember reading something about the well, the you know that agatha christie wrote final curtain very early on and then put it in a drawer because quite clearly he was you know the goose that laid the golden egg and drove mm. her you know it drove her mad. I mean she takes a she takes the piss out of it in Pale Horse with um, Ariadne Oliver and this detective that she can't stand and wants to kill and it made me feel really sad for for Poirot who, <laughs> who I felt deserved more, deserved something so that if he did become this irritating little man with all his tics and mannerisms there was a reason for it and he was doing what christie herself does which is which is concealment hiding you've so i thought that would be a good a good way to sort of think about him otherwise i don't think i'd have been able to able to do the um to do the adaptation if it just, just been let's just do another poirot why what's the point there's no yeah, point I in know. doing that
2: you, you just reminded me of something sarah which is that a, a, at the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival every year, we do a quiz, and well, I once asked a question from stage, with, uh, which was in, in which Agatha Christie novel does Poirot die? And this horrified scream went up from the back of the room and a woman went, Poirot dies? Oh my um, God. <laughs> I, um, now, uh, you know, particularly the ABC murder, um, it's, I mean, it's often the case with any adaptation, but it was, it was pretty controversial. And there were a few Christie fans who- What, what, you know, what,
1: what was, it, was it controversial?
2: Well, I, I, I remember getting involved in one particular Twitter spat about it. Um, you know, idiots, make, you know, c- complaining about the fact that you've made, in inverted commas, power an immigrant, when that's perfect. Oh, yeah. in the books, You know, and that sort of stuff.
1: You know, it's like people going, like, you've ruined my childhood with your lefty, you're forcing your lefty politics by by making him a refugee. It's like, you ridiculous <laughs> fucking bivalve. He is canonically. <laughs> What do you think he was doing here? So, and I mean I, I do get that. I mean, I don't, you know, I used to get that a lot with virtually everything. Now it was some one person said, um, after Pale Horse went out, and somebody came on my Twitter feed and went, You are a stain. A stain. <laughs> a stain. I mean, I think the most um I, I got I got put on a Breitbart kill list, which, you know, that was intriguing. Wow. I just think, yeah, all right, you know, when you've when you've left your mum's you know, your mum's basement wanking into her pops-ups, so I'll see you outside and let's see who comes off the worst, because I can tell you it won't be me. Well, and I, should, it
2: was, um, I should imagine now, though, that if, if one of your adaptations goes out and there isn't a bit of a fuss, you probably um, feel like you wouldn't have done your job properly.
1: Oh, uh, do you know something? It's, uh, somebody else said something, well, you, you, you go out of your way to do this. No, I don't go out of my it's way. way. It's there. It's there yeah. in the book. Read the bloody book and read it properly pay attention but you know there's a lot of people out there who breathe through gills what? And, and they're you know professional offence takers and i mean it's utterly astonishing i mean was it after i think it was after abc murders where you know, it, it went on for ages ages and ages and me being tagged into people going like you've ruined everything you're shit i hate you ages and ages, and ages. but i just kept thinking christ christie would be absolutely thrilled to bits with this yeah. she'd be thrilled to bits Hercule Poirot is trending uh, you know he he's he's a trending topic he's a trending topic for three nights the, uh, during Pale Horse I was a trending topic for a bit and I popped onto it and went like oh look there's my name I was a, I'm a hashtag and I popped on to see if people were saying you know like oh she's really good and they're going like I hate her she should be shot she needs a bullet <laughs> <I can't help. laughs>
2: We will be talking we will be talking more to the brilliant and fabulously sweary Sarah Phelps after the break because now it's that time when we find out what our roving reporter Paul Hirons, has been up to. Now Paul I understand you've got a very special guest with you someone with a rather special connection to the woman
3: we're talking about.
2: Paul over to you.
3: Yes, thank you Mark. Now in keeping with our celebration of all things Agatha Christie in the centenary year of the mysterious affair at Styles I'm delighted to say that chairman and CEO of Agatha Christie Limited and Agatha's own great-grandson, James Pritchard, joins us now. James, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Thank you. Um, It must be a very special year, not only for the company itself and the fans, but also for the family.
0: Well, it's it's a funny one. I mean, I'm traditionally not that big a fan of, of anniversaries because one of the things about if you have a career as extensive um, and as successful as Agatha Christie's, you have anniversaries coming, you know, round every year. And, and most of them, I kind of think, don't mean a lot. Um, but the closer this one got, the more significant I felt it was. I think the publication of her first novel was, I mean, for obvious reasons, um, the beginning of everything. And it was, it was still an extraordinary achievement. And it kind of sums up a lot of actually what I think are her achievements, which is, you know, here she was a woman born in the 1890s in Torquay in Southwest England. Um, and come 19, uh, yeah, 1920, sorry, I got my, my centuries <laughs> up there. come 1920, you know, she has her first novel published and then, you know, she goes on to one of the greatest writing careers in, in, well, in the, in world history. Um, and it is—it's still extraordinary that that she managed to achieve that. Um, just that first little step, let alone the rest of it.
3: I mean, it must be incredible just being part of that family and having that kind of link with with Agatha. And it makes
0: you feel pretty insignificant on lots of levels, <laughs> I can assure you. <laughs> Absolutely,
3: uh, I'm sure. Do you have you even stopped? Let, let's put a spin on the old: What is it about Agatha's work that has endured all those years? Do you, have you just stopped thinking about it now and just accepting that she was just a hugely talented woman with an incredible imagination, incredible work ethic, and it's not even worth trying to figure that out? Or do you have a theory?
0: Look, I, I have this slight um, bastardization of a of a Bill Quint- Clinton quotation um, that I use, which is you know his famous phrase of "It's the economy, stupid." Um, <laughs> I kind of use the phrase "It's the story's stupid." Um, she had an incredible capacity for thinking up stories, for thinking up plots. Um, she wrote, however, many you know, full-length novels—66 full-length novels—and and not well. I mean, there's the odd slight repetition, but really, they are all individual stories with, with very different um, makeups to them. Um, they were all set at different times throughout her life, um, and and there aren't mistakes in them. I mean, there is no Wikipedia page that illustrates. You know the way Agatha Christie's plots don't work; they all do work, um, and I think that's what both makes her great, but it's also what stands the test of time. Because the thing about great stories is they don't age; they don't. They also work across the world, and that's why she's the most translated author in all, of all yeah, time. Yeah. Um, she is. You know, it, it it comes down to these plots, these stories um, that she invented, and she just had this incredible capacity for doing this.
3: Where did that come from then? I've I've read that she had a very you know she she had imaginary friends and wrote and devoured uh, books and and was a voracious reader from an early age. Do you think that was it? That was, it was partly down. Was it an innate thing or was it uh, the way she lived well, at Charted? Part of it, part- or-
0: part of it obviously has to be innate. I mean, you've, mm. you've got to have something that you're born with. I just don't believe it's not part of that. Mm. But part of it must also have been, been her childhood. I mean, she had an incredibly... I mean, she herself prefers to having an incredibly happy childhood, but it was also a very free childhood um, and and quite an individual one. I mean, she, she didn't go to school, so she spent a lot of time on her own. Um, her siblings were a bit older, so they probably didn't play with her that much. So she lived... She lived a lot in her own world and I think her family um, kind of encouraged her imagination and I think that's where it went. She was inventing stories, inventing games from a young age. I think she was writing stories from a young age and she just allowed her imagination and was allowed for her imagination to wander and grow. And I think that's that's the simple simple story of it.
3: Um, now, obviously, it is the centenary this year and no doubt you had lots of things arranged and set up before the whole pandemic hit (laughs) yeah what i mean where can people go to get their daily fix of agatha christie i know they've got a fantastic website and hopefully things might you know happen later on in the year who knows have you got any virtual things going on we've
0: got a few things um going on i mean we're still communicating and we're still doing stuff on on the on the web and, and with our fan base but i mean the great thing about her is that she is always accessible um you know the books are still available um i mean they're certainly available electronically even if bookshops are closed and, and even then you can probably get hold of of the books somewhere um my father during this lockdown has rather interestingly or amusingly i think he has his daily ritual is to sit down in front of itv3 at seven o'clock every <laughs> evening and watch and watch the latest edition of poirot wow.
3: um
0: you know i i think you know one of the great things about her is I mean, I I don't really like the kind of the kind of image of her as some kind of cosy, warm, soothing thing. But I think there is something comforting about an Agatha Christie story. Um, and I think in times of of crisis, people do return to to what they know and what they love. And I think I think therefore this is actually quite a good time to reengage if or engage with Agatha Christie mm. and ITV3 or or all the books. Are always available, as are you know other means of getting hold of, of the various adaptations that there are around the place.
3: Mm, great stuff, James. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, with that, it's back to you in the studio, Mark. <laughs> Thanks Paul. Now we're back with award-winning screenwriter Sarah
2: Phelps talking about Agatha Christie and her fantastic adaptations. Before we talk a bit a, a bit more about Christie the person, I want to touch on on your latest adaptation the one you've already mentioned Pale Horse, which was again very different in look and feel to the previous adaptation. Is that something important to you? I know you said you were dealing with different decades, so Yeah. they're going to yeah, have different look I, and feel. Absolutely.
1: Right? I mean, do you mean tonally or just the Yeah.
2: Just I mean, you're, thing? you, you I, I I presume I mean, app ap, Producer Paul he swears there's a bit of kind of Patricia Highsmith, a bit of Hitchcockian noir in that. Oh one. yeah,
1: there was always. I mean, uh, one of the things I had in the front of my mind when I was um, writing Pale Horse was that Christie, at this time, her star was sort of, you know, she was being overtaken by by writers like Highsmith, who had just created these absolutely amoral characters like Ripley. <laughs> and I, when I was reading Pale Horse, which again, there's Again, it's a very sort of cloaked strange book and you can be bowling along through it with all its sort of village fates and dogs of mange and ridiculous things and just sort of go, oh, you know, it's just a, a shallow piece of frippery. But I thought what I want to do with this is to really muddy it up and to take elements from the book and make the, that are sort of those little discordant clues and pull them up front and sort of write the story about that. And that kind of, that sort of high smithy feel came very, came very naturally, actually. It came very naturally in the writing and um, as I was writing it and it came very naturally in the way the film was directed and designed and um, and in Rufus and Kaya, I mean, and uh, Bertie Carvel, who just were amazing. Um, and it was, yeah, Ru- I think Rufus's performance, very dominated, gave, gave that feeling of being able to walk that line between being, you don't know if this man is a villain, you don't know what he's done, you don't know what he could do, and you cannot take your eyes off him. You don't actually know what his morality is. Um, that's, and that gave it that lovely edge as well. Well, I mean,
2: if, if you're going to look at the, sort of the seedy underbelly beneath the glamour, that glamour needs to be there, and it certainly was
1: oh yeah absolutely they, they i mean but i think it's it it's that sort of teeming feeling i was really really um obsessed with the fact that by the time you got to by the time you get to Pale horse which is you know it's all about suggestibility it's all about believing in believing in the devil and at the same time that it's being written this book in 1961 as you know, obviously like Alistair Crowley is sort of very popular and, and there's a lot of, I was digging around in some newspapers up at the time and there are people being sort of arrested for um, holding sort of satanic kind of rituals on, you know, on nice little Surrey commons and things like that. And there was this sort of like real interest in it. And I love all the sort of, I love all sort of folk horror stuff and things like that. And I got really obsessed with looking up uh, straw boys and kind of those sort of ancient sort of rituals where, you know, um, around harvest and things like that. And I love the idea of having this incredibly stylish, sophisticated man, like a blade in a sharp suit, actually falling prey to this, actually believing that, you know, that the devil does exist, actually believing that you can You can sort of curse somebody to death, really wholeheartedly believing it because, and then realizing that actually it was just, it was just evil. It was just the banality of evil of one person. It it didn't exist at all. I became so obsessed with that, thinking that while is writing this, um, it's the Adolf Eichmann trial. It's being televised from Jerusalem into the corner of your living room. And it just felt like this huge collision of the things, you know, you know, when the who we are when the lights go out, and that light flickering in the corner, which is showing us the banality of evil as Adolf Eichmann is tried on on television. It felt like a really exciting way to to look at that clash.
2: And you, you, you've talked about this way of charting, you know, charting the history of the the early part of the twentieth century through these five Christie adaptations, and you're up to pale horse in what 61 so is there is there a temptation to to go early 70s and maybe nemesis or something like that
1: um I don't know I mean the thing was I always said I wanted to do a quintet and I've done a quintet and I think next Tech, come on well the thing is is that I I think you know obviously yes the temptation is strong but I would want to find another way to frame it so that there was a reason to do them rather than just dragging something on because otherwise they'll 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 start to get i'd I'd be really worried about them getting that sort of flabby repetitive christy quality which I, i don't want to do to them i want them to be fresh and shocking and if i did do more i i mean i've got a vague idea about doing some more but to have them framed in a different way so that to to justify doing them and to justify so that so that they don't get sort of swallowed up of oh here we are now we're going to have another Christie another shocking Christie yawn 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 what <laughs> makes them what makes them shocking is the way they're framed and I want, to find, I want to find another way to frame them that feels really fresh. Bear in
2: mind the way you you adapted Poirot, it would be so fantastic if you were going to have a crack at Marple in the 70s. Um, I
1: I feel like uh, I don't. <clears throat> I don't at the moment have any plans to do that and I feel like there's a danger that I might feel like I've done that and I again I'm I'm really wary about um retreading re you know retreading a route shall we say yes yeah. so we'll have to see what comes up in the future um I've got an idea about the future but I'm they marple isn't involved
2: (laughs) Well, i mean you know obviously you adapt the books you want to adapt but i i'm guessing that the 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 tv companies are knocking at your door because these have been such massive hits sarah well what for more christies yeah no really
1: well you know i'm sure they'd be keen if I, i you know i who knows what would be happening if it wasn't for the pandemic yeah and I mean, it's kind of weird because now in my year, it's now if when I'm finalizing scripts and we're getting ready to start pre-production, what is it, we're at the end of May. Yeah, we'd be thinking like in about six weeks time, we're gonna start shooting. Yeah. So it feels weird to not be in that situation, but it's also um, means that I can sort of think about other things. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, well, I, what you've made abundantly clear um, to anybody listening is that christie's a far more interesting character i think than an awful lot of people give her credit for um
1: and in terms i think i think so i think she's tricksy i'll tell you what i would love to write about i'd love to write about when she disappeared
2: well that's what that's the very next thing i want to talk to you about because you know anybody listening to this i'm sure is aware of when she famously went missing in 1926 for 11 days and you just can't underestimate how massive this was! I mean, this is like J.K. Rowling disappearing. It's a huge, you know, Ooh. national, international story. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, she she finally was was found staying at a, a, the Old Swan Hotel in Harrogate, where we now have the the annual Crime Writers' Festival, um, which you were going to be at this year, I think. Um, what a shame! I was, yes. You know, that's not going to happen. But it, bigger and better next year. Um, and I, in fact, a couple of years ago, I stayed in the in in that room in the Christie sweet and, and it's a, It's a rather spooky experience, I've got to tell you. What Do you have a theory about what happened, Sarah?
1: Um, I was, well, there's a few. And I think she'd just split up with her husband, hadn't she? I mean, he basically been... He'd, be, he'd done her wrong. He'd been having an affair. Is that right?
2: Yes, and, and as far as I'm and, aware, she checked into the hotel under the name of the woman he was having an affair with.
1: Oh, do you know what? I, I, think,
2: I think I think I'm right in saying that.
1: I think part of it was to see what people would say. Yeah. Yeah, I do, but well, I also what think they, think they really thought about of, her. You mean? Sorry.
2: What they really thought about her? You mean when they weren't just writing yeah, about I her think
1: book? So. And maybe it was also just to think, like you know, here she is she'd been cheated on that must have you know that that hurts every that hurts anyone checks into the hotel with the name of the, the woman and then disappears it's a it's another concealment isn't it yeah. it's another concealment and I genuinely think I wonder how much of it was like you really you fucking hurt me you bastard you and that woman you absolutely hurt me I am now going to throw what you've done into such sharp relief by checking in under her name and then I'm going to vanish.
2: Right. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think in, in two different biographies of, of Christie, what, what, you know, one theory is, is largely what you've just suggested that, she was deliberately, you know, trying to embarrass her husband, show her husband up for what he was, without quite anticipating, you know, the fallout that there would be. But another biographer has suggested that she was in the in the middle of a, of a massive nervous breakdown and not in control of herself. There was there was largely negative reaction, I think, publicly at the time. I and mean, it was a huge story. But I mean, nobody really knows, do they? Nobody
1: knows, but I mean that, that doesn't stop you from speculating. I oh, think that,
2: that, how great to write about. It's the perfect I. Well, exactly, thing to write
1: about. But I, I... But there's just something about it where I just wonder if there's something a little bit more flinty, a little bit more flinty, because, you know, it's a, I mean, I can, you know, I was I was asking the um, Agatha Christie um, estate about this and saying, look, I'd love to write about it. And I don't think they. I don't think they're keen. Um, you know, it's very private to them.
2: Oh, I would love to see you write that story, sir.
1: I'd love to see. I'd love to see her finding out. Have you read any of her short stories? No. The early ones, things no. like Philomel Corner. No, I've not. It it's it's in the collection that uh, Witness for the Prosecution is in, and um, it's really brutal as a depiction of 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 a, 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 an awful marriage, and a really kind of that the low level simmering horrifying violence. It's um, it's one hell of a read. I'm serious.
2: Well, I, I think having adapted those five books so brilliantly, the, the next thing you should do in a way to round everything off is to write about the woman herself um, and, and, and to write about that Disappearance. Um, before we let you go, Sarah, we always ask uh, guests on the podcast for a quick recommendation uh, on something to read and something to watch. So if you've got a, a, a crime novel you'd like to recommend, well, you've been recommending loads already, and, or maybe something you've seen on TV or both.
1: Um, one of my favourite crime novels... Is Gorky Park by Martin Cruz Smith, right. and I um, took a very long coach trip when I was seventeen from Florence to London, and that's a that's a long coach trip. And I picked it up as I left Florence. I had I'd bought it in a bookshop in an English uh, an English language bookshop, just because I don't know why I was just intrigued by the by the title, and read it without a break, and then went back to the beginning and read it again. I think he's brilliant and I think those all of those um Renko stories are phenomenal It's a way of writing about the Soviet, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the emergence of the new Russia. They are genuinely brilliant, I think. And I'm um Renko is an amazing character and that's my huge recommendation for um for something to for something to uh read and i am re-watching on bbc iplayer the wonderful car share um which is making <laughs> me cry with laughter and it's a very lovely and if you've been enjoying normal people which is so beautiful car Show is actually a wonderful companion piece about love about finding finding that person and falling in love it's fantastic
2: well, thank you, two fantastic recommendations there. Um, and a huge thanks to to Sarah Phelps and to James Pritchard for joining us on the latest episode of A Stab in the Dark. Just a reminder that you can watch all the best crime drama on Alibi, which is available on Sky, Virgin Media, BT and TalkTalk. Talk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then for God's sake, remember to review, rate and subscribe. I always say it, but it really does make a huge difference to us and the future of the podcast. If you don't, well, I might end up breaking into your house and leaving 10 little figurines on your dinner table, then breaking back in again <laughs> (laughs) couple of days to remove one until, well, we all know what happens next. A special thanks to our producers Paul Hirons and Joel Porter. My name's Mark Burlingham and thanks for listening.